Hello, everyone, and welcome to today's Safety and Health webcast sponsored by JJ Keller. Wanted to let you know as you're logging on, you're in the right place. We're going to get things started in about one minute. Hello to everyone as you log in. Wanted to let you know you are in the right place. This is the Safety and Health webcast sponsored by JJ Keller. Going to get everything going in about 30 seconds from now. Hi everyone and welcome to today's Safety and Health webcast, Written Safety Plans, Laying a Foundation for Compliance and More, sponsored by JJ Keller. My name is Kevin Drewley. I'm an Associate Editor with Safety and Health Magazine and I'll be moderating today's session. Thanks for joining us. We hope you all are safe and well amid the ongoing COVID-19 pandemic. In a few minutes, we'll start the presentation, but first I wanna go over some preliminary items. The views of today's speakers and organizations are their own, and do not necessarily reflect those of the National Safety Council or Safety and Health Magazine. Any mention of a commercial enterprise, product, or publication doesn't mean the council or magazine endorses those items. At the end of today's webcast, we'll conduct a question and answer session. To ask a question, simply click the Q&A button at the bottom of your screen, type your question, and click the Send button. Feel free to ask your question at any time during the presentation. You don't have to wait for the question and answer session to begin. I'll try to answer as many questions as possible but because of the large number of participants today, we might not get to every question. Any unanswered questions will be forwarded along to today's speakers. At the end of the webcast, you'll be asked to complete a brief evaluation survey that will appear on a separate screen. We will let you know more about that after the presentation. This webcast is archived, so you can access it after today's live event. To view this webcast and all of our past webcasts, go to safetyandhealthmagazine.com events. You may also receive a link and a post of any email. With that, let's go ahead and get started. Our speakers today are Tricia Hodkovich and Mark Stromey. Tricia is an EHS editor at JJ Keller, who for 20 plus years has provided content for safety and environmental related publications on subjects including hazard communication, hazardous waste operations and emergency response, bloodborne pathogens, signs and labels, and written plans. Using the personal assistant feature of Keller Online, she also has fielded thousands of regulatory questions from EHS professionals. Mark is a senior EHS editor at J.J. Keller who joined the organization in 1994. He develops content for various J.J. Keller publications and specializes in OSHA construction and general industry regulations. Mark also is an authorized OSHA outreach construction trainer who is well-versed in fielding questions from safety pros to assist them with challenges. Tricia and Mark, we thank you for being here today. Tricia, whenever you're ready, go ahead and take it away. Thank you, Kevin. And hello, everyone. Uh, today's webcast written safety plans, uh, laying the foundation for compliance, and more is presented by J.J. Keller's newest addition to our growing family of world-class EHS solutions. Tackle tomorrow's problems today with the J.J. Keller Safety Management Suite. This ready resource provides round-the-clock access to all of J.J. Keller's most popular safety management tools, making it easy to develop a full-service safety program from the ground up. Find out later in this webcast how you can register for a complimentary trial. On behalf of J.J. Keller Safety Management Suite, thank you for joining us. What's black and white and one of the first things an OSHA officer will look for during an inspection? The answer is your written safety and health plans. Just by looking over your hazard communication program, respiratory protection program, and lockout tagout procedures, for example, an OSHA officer can quickly gauge how well you're protecting your workers from on-the-job hazards. And this is all before the inspector even steps foot into your production areas. However, developing effective written plans is not just a paperwork exercise or a tool to pass an OSHA inspection. Written plans, whether required or not, provide many benefits that we will cover in a bit. Your company likely falls under one or more of the over 60 written plan requirements for general industry and construction. 
Are you sure you have the ones you need? This webcast will discuss written plan regulations and explore what makes plans more effective. This webcast is geared for all those who develop, approve, or implement written safety plans for general industry and construction as part of an overall safety and health program for an employer. Today we offer some terminology, examine plan benefits, cover required written plans and enforcement, and go over non-required plans. We explore how to get started writing. We'll also touch on plan implementation, review, updates, and trouble spots. Throughout the webcast, we'll pose some fun knowledge test questions. We thought we'd start by posing a quick knowledge test question. Ask yourself this question, myth or fact. Employers may keep required written safety plans electronically. You're not expected to be an expert on this just yet. Uh, these are fun self-test questions, uh, which just make us engage more in what we're learning. So ask yourself, employers may keep required written safety plans electronically, myth or fact? Mark, what is our answer? All right. Uh, thank you, everybody, for joining us. So, Tricia, the correct answer is fact. Plans may be kept electronically. Now, OSHA addressed the electronic plans back in a 2008 letter of interpretation. Uh, the letter states, and I'm quoting, OSHA would allow a written program to be either in paper or electronic format, as long as the program meets all other requirements of the standard in question. Where the standard requires a written program must be made available to employees, the employer must ensure the employees know how to access the document and that there are no barriers to employee access. End quote. So, you see OSHA does allow electronic plans, but only if they meet the regulations. So read those carefully, especially how the agency wants you to uh, make the plans accessible to employees. Uh, also, you have to be able to provide required plans to an OSHA inspector right away when he or she requests them. So if you're able to quickly print out the plan from your computer and give it to the inspector, you should be doing just fine. All right, so let's start out by going over a little terminology here. Now, plans or programs document what your facility is doing overall to protect employees regarding a given safety or health topic. The word plan and program are often used interchangeably. Here's an example. OSHA calls for a written exposure control plan for bloodborne pathogens. However, when it comes to HASCOM, OSHA wants a written hazard communication program. While uh, safety procedures also document how you're protecting your employees, they do this in a step-by-step -step fashion for a given operation rather than in an overall way. Uh, lockout tagle procedures are a good example. And it should be noted that some of your plan and program requirements may call for procedural elements. Now, let's shift here. Uh, what about policies? They're a little different. They document your company's philosophy or rules towards safety and health. Uh, now, as we go through the rest of this webcast, we'll simply use the term written safety plan or the abbreviation WSP or just written plan to refer to all types of safety plans, programs, procedures, and policies. Keep in mind, we will not be covering other types of records such as training records, inspection and maintenance records, monitoring records, or injury logs. All right, so what's the purpose of a written safety plan? And it, it's gonna vary from uh, employer to employer. Uh, these plans can provide at least 16 benefits and we have them listed on the slide there. Essentially, whether required or not, written plans are the cornerstone of a complete safety and health program. A plan defines and directs your safety and health efforts and provides your establishment or enterprise and its employees with safety and health goals. Now this includes expectations, rules and standard procedures, um, 
in defined roles and responsibilities. What it is, it's your evidence of management concern for and employee involvement with safety and health. Having effective written plans in place is going to help lower direct and indirect costs of injuries and illnesses and property damage. Uh, this raises the profit margin uh, if you are a for-profit company. And Tricia, back to you. Excellent, Mark. So thank you. Uh, Customers often ask us if they need a given written plan or what written plans they need. Each regulation usually has a scope and applicability section. So if you find that a regulation applies to you, you'll want to see if there's a written plan requirement and read it carefully. If that requirement just says the employer must have a written plan, then you'll need to write one. But if the requirement narrows things and specifies who under the regulation is required to write a plan, then you'll want to make a determination as to if that means you or not. So if, uh, also, if you're located in a state plan state, like California, Minnesota, or Washington, for example, your state may have more stringent requirements than federal OSHA. So, uh, and it may even require additional plans. So we encourage you to check your state regulations for any further requirements. Also note that your workers' compensation agency may call for other written plans and provide discounts when plans are implemented. Uh, let's head for the COVID, yep, great. So this slide, before we get into all of the required uh, plans for general industry, uh, we thought we'd first talk about the newest plan in the bunch. In July, covered healthcare settings had to implement a COVID-19 plan, and if they had more than 10 employees, it had to be, it has to be in writing. Uh, plan elements include the elements you see listed on the slide. Uh, for the managing risk element, OSHA is looking for certain measures that we're, we've all come to know. Uh, they involve training, social distancing, personal protective equipment, cleaning and disinfecting, ventilation, vaccination, screening, medical management, and more. All right, so this slide here is the first of three slides listing required written plans we've identified in the general industry regulations. You may fall under any number of these regulations as we walk through the next several slides pointing out well over 60 OSHA required plans for general industry and construction. Don't get too overwhelmed. While these plans are required, probably not all of them apply to you. So Safety Management Suite's plans and policies feature has tools that can help you figure out the plans you need and how to complete them. You can see that we've included the new COVID-19 plan on our list. Two required plans have a special exemption. Uh, they're bolded in blue on our slide. According to OSHA, the Emergency Action Plan and Fire Prevention Plan must be in writing. However, and I quote, an employer with 10 or fewer employees may communicate the plan orally to employees, end quote. Those two plans along with that COVID-19 plan I mentioned, are the only general industry plans with such an option. All other plans are required to be in writing for general industry, if applicable to your company, if you have one or more employees. We also bolded the fall protection plan in red. This plan is relatively new for general industry, but only applies for residential roof work when you find it infeasible to use conventional fall protection required at 1910.28. In other words, you can demonstrate it is infeasible to use guardrails, safety nets, or personal fall protection on residential roofs. Now, here are some more required written plans for general industry. Notice the third one down is the HASCOM program. Your program should always reflect what you're doing when, uh, so when you implemented the GHS changes, your program should have reflected those changes. In February, uh, OSHA issued a proposed rule for HASCOM with changes throughout the regulation. While the proposed changes would not revise the uh, required regulations uh, for the written HASCOM program, 
when OSHA finalizes this rule, and this could be in several months, if not a, a year or a little more than that, but once that happens, you'll want to ensure that your written program syncs up with any changes you make in line with the new rule. Of course, we're watching this one closely. Okay, so the second to last one on the slide, a respiratory protection program. Not only will you see that plan requirement in 1910.134, but you'll find that many chemical-specific regulations require that program to be in place for those chemicals, and those chemical-specific regulations will reference 1910.134. And note the hearing protection program is not on the slide. Uh, for general industry 29 CFR 1910.95 requires a hearing conservation program if you meet the threshold, but the regulation does not require you to put that in writing. And there is a letter of interpretation that goes over that explanation. We listed all the required written general industry plans for toxic and hazardous substances on this slide. Uh, these are found in subpart Z of 29 CFR 1910. You can see that we have the new beryllium exposure control plan listed in red. The final rule was published in January 2017, and this plan, as well as the respiratory protection program, was required to be in place for general industry in 2018. The newer Respirable Crystalline Silic Plan is listed. That one came out with a written plan compliance date of June 2018. In, uh, that was for general industry and maritime. The last compliance date in the silica standard occurred back on June 23rd, where hydraulic fracturing operations, uh, they now have to meet the engineering control obligations. And this relates to our discussion because the written plan must describe engineering controls used to limit silica exposures. By the way, uh, Safety Management Suite offers a toxic and hazardous substances compliance program template to help you complete one or more of the substance-specific plans listed on this slide, including the two new ones. The J.J. Keller uh, Safety Management Suite is sponsoring today's event, so we'd like to offer our attendees access to our safety plan templates at no cost to help simplify your safety efforts. The J.J. Keller Safety Management Suite offers over 120 pre-written safety plan templates for OSHA, EPA, and DOT. And just uh, choose your topic, fill out the forms, and in minutes, you'll have a comprehensive written plan that's built for your business. And along with your access to a free safety plan or plans here in the site, we'll also email you a digital copy of our written safety plans white paper where you will get answers to the top questions we receive on written safety plans. And so please uh, select the, uh, the poll, uh, your interest on the poll. And uh, Kevin, back to you. Certainly, no, I had a couple questions, one for, for each of you related to this. Um, first one's from Mark and it asks, do we need to post written plans in a conspicuous place? All right, uh, good question. Well, uh, just like we mentioned with electronic plans, uh, many times OSHA will require plans to be readily available or accessible to employees. The thing is OSHA does not say what format that takes. Uh, posting the plan certainly will work, but there's really no blanket requirement to post written plans. I'm not even aware of a specific plan that's required to be posted. Uh, there is the Coke oven, uh, Coke oven standard, but that requires certain documented procedures to be posted. So as always, uh, always check the regulation to be sure. Well, thank you. Now we've uh, again got a question for Tricia asking, are we required to have a COVID-19 plan if we are not in healthcare? Good one, uh, Kevin. So. Currently, if you don't have a healthcare setting covered by the new rule, the short answer is no. Uh, federal OSHA does 
not require uh, you to have a written plan, but <laughs> the catch is that some state agencies do, so be aware of that. Um, we're definitely going to go over this a little bit more uh, when we talk about the non-required plans, but uh, all right. Uh, Mark, I think back to you. Great, thanks. Okay, now this is the first of our two slides listing required written plans we've identified in the construction regulations. Uh, you notice there are fewer plans required for construction than general industry, for example, no written lockout tagger procedures, no bloodborne pathogen exposure control plan. Uh, but for construction, you'll see a new one, the site-specific steel erection plan. And notice we've listed the emergency action plan. Constructions 1926.35 says that EAP must be in writing. However, if you only have 10 or fewer employees at your site, you may communicate that plan orally to them. Uh, but you see for construction, there's no written fire prevention plan requirement, uh, except for methylene deaniline. Uh, and that simply points back to the general industry regulation for a fire pre prevention plan and has the same option. So as for the remaining plans, they're all required to be in writing if applicable to your company and you have at least one or more employees. Now for the permit required confined spaces, that's OSHA's uh, subpart AA in 1926. That went into effect in August of 2015 and it's written program requirement, pretty much like the one for general industry, but it, this one's tailored to construction work activities conducted in a permit space. All right. So here you can see the required uh, written construction plans for toxic and hazardous substances. Now these are found in subpart D and Z of 1929 CFR 1926, or excuse me, 29 CFR 1926. Now the thing to take away from here is unlike general industry, OSHA does not require a asbestos program for construction, but the asbestos standard does call out for a written respiratory protection program. Uh, however, um, it might be wise to organize your policies, procedures, and documentation uh, around asbestos compliance into one overall plan. I'm thinking that's probably going to be the best way to go. Uh, also, you can see the beryllium plan. This one has been in the reg since 2017. Uh, last year, uh, OSHA issued a final rule revising uh, the regulation, including its written plan elements, and then those written plan provisions took effect back in uh, September, last September. Again, you can see the relatively new crystalline silica plan for construction. Uh, we got that listed. And with that said, I'm gonna turn it over to Tricia. All right, looking at OSHA enforcement data for calendar year, uh, calendar years, 2019 and 20. 2020, we dug out the violations for written plan requirements. The top fives are found here. Uh, not surprisingly for general industry, the HASCOM program is the top violated written plan followed by the lockout tagout procedure. For construction, the fall protection plan was the top violation and this is followed by the respirable crystalline silica exposure control plan. Uh, note that some of the tallies for HASCOM and respiratory protection programs uh, include violations from the construction industry. Uh, so, uh, and get this, some violations of written plans are considered not other than serious, but serious. And so this means the penalty can reach $13,653. Uh, if you have more than one, the violation can multiply. Regardless, if you're getting started with if you're starting your, uh, writing your plans one way, not the only way, but one way to prioritize maybe to start with some of the plans on these lists. 
You might find that the regulations are not specific enough about what OSHA is looking for when it comes to written plans. The good news is several compliance directives do go into more detail. These compliance documents are meant to help OSHA inspectors determine what they should be looking for, but you can use them to understand the regulations, when the plans apply, and what you need to put into those plans. The CPL for emergency action plans and fire prevention plans, for example, it has an excellent explanation about when those plans kick in, depending on what options you take under the fire extinguisher regulation. Whether you do or don't keep fire extinguishers and whether you have some, all, or none of your employees use them, the options you choose make a difference in whether you need an EAP and or an FPP. The CPL for respiratory protection is relatively new. It explains the components of a compliant respirator program. The newer workplace violence CPL does not require a prevention program but recommends one and lists eight elements that should be included. The CPL for HASCOM explains how 1910.1200 will be enforced. Six of those pages explain what inspectors will look for in the way of a written HASCOM program. The CPLs for silica are new. One explains the industries OSHA will target for silica inspection. The other explains uh, what inspectors look for regarding a written plan for silica. In June, OSHA issued its directive on the COVID-19 emergency temporary standard, and about six pages cover what inspectors will expect in a written plan. All right, here's another self-test question to ask yourself. Small employers are exempt from all written safety plan requirements. Think this is a myth or fact? This is our second self-test question today. It says, small employers are exempt from all written safety plan requirements. Myth or fact? I'm sure a lot of small employers listening today are eager to know the answer to this one. Mark, what's the answer? All right, Tricia. The answer is myth. Small employers are not exempt from all written safety plan requirements. Safety plan requirements, uh, you could just have one employee and that makes, and it makes no difference. Uh, you have to have written plan requirements if the regulations apply. The only exceptions are for the emergency action plan and fire prevention plan. As we mentioned earlier, the EAP and the FPP can be provided orally if you have 10 or fewer employees at your establishment. Uh, you know, generally though, there's no across the board exemption for small employers and there's no general cutoff number uh, for employees. All right, let's take a closer look at a related frequently asked question. When is an EAP or FPP required? Now, you're going to find that in 1910.38 for general industry and 1926.35 for construction, they don't specifically require an emergency action plan. Instead, the regulations say this section applies to all emergency action plans required by a particular OSHA standard. So you have to figure out what those standards are to determine whether you need an EAP. Those standards include 13 regulations with everything from the fire extinguisher standard to the process safety management and HAZWOPR standards. Uh, the fire prevention plan for general industry and construction too is only needed when another OSHA standard requires it. There's five standards that do require the FPP, including again, the fire extinguisher standard and some substance specific standards. Uh, the good news is you will find lists of these standards in safety management suite as indicated in that gray text at the bottom of the slide. All right, let's talk about non-required plans. We mentioned these briefly before. Um, OSHA uh, doesn't require these, but they're very popular among employers. Uh, these plans have most of the benefits we listed earlier. Remember the slide with the 16. Uh, what that does is it streamlines your safety efforts, defines safety roles, that type of thing. 
However, we want to give you a few other reasons to write plans, especially if they're not required to be written. It makes a lot of sense. First, there's a general duty clause um, to the Occupational Safety and Health Act. Uh, that's a law that says you have to keep the workplace uh, free from recognized hazards that are causing or likely to cause death or serious physical harm to employees. And think about it, with all the hazards at your workplace, how do you manage to do that? Well, a lot of people, a lot of customers and a lot of companies implement written plans. So we put 1926.20B1 uh, and two here because these paragraphs actually call for accident prevention plans, excuse me, programs for construction. They require it. Uh, it says you must initiate and maintain such programs as may be necessary to comply with this part. And that's of course, part 1926. Now it's our understanding that these programs are not required to be in writing. Um, OSHA, but keep this in mind, OSHA cited these two paragraphs almost 3,900 times through the calendar year 19, excuse me, 2019 and 2020, 3,900 times. So it's a good idea to get your programs down in writing. Now, that may especially be the case if you don't want a comprehensive OSHA inspection. Uh, for construction, they have what is called the focus inspection initiative where the compliance officer comes in, wants to look at your safety and health program to see if in fact it meets 1926.20. And not only that, uh, it has to be effective. Uh, if it is, the officer won't inspect the whole site, just a representative portion of it. And he or she will then limit the scope to just four things. That would be falls struck by, caught in or between, and electrical shock hazards. But you know, if you don't have a uh, safety and health program or it's not effective, then the visit probably is going to turn into a comprehensive inspection. And of course, we do not want that. Let's tackle consensus standards. Um, these would be ANSI uh, or NFPA standards. They may call for a written plan where OSHA does not. Uh, an example, OSHA requires lockout takeout procedures to be in writing, but the overall lockout takeout energy control program is not required to be in writing. But if you look at ANSI Z20, excuse me, Z244.1, that is a consensus standard for lockout takeout. It calls for a written program for hazardous energy control. Another example, motor vehicle operations. So many occupational fatalities are caused by transportation incidents. OSHA doesn't require a written plan for motor vehicle operations, but ANSI Z15.1 does. That's the standard for fleet motor vehicles. So with that said, you could, you could just say that consensus standards are like national best practices. They've, they've gone through a lengthy approval process by the, their stakeholders and consensus standards often offer the detail and firm guidance not given by OSHA. So they fill in the blanks um, and, and give you some idea what you actually have to do. And finally, if you have unwritten rules about how certain tasks are performed or why activities are prohibited, you know, unless they're written down, they may not be any consistency in how you communicate these things. Uh, this can not only create problems when you're trying to enforce your own safety rules, but it can lead to liability or fines if employees don't follow a procedure that hasn't been documented or communicated. Talk to your supervisors and employees to determine if you have any unwritten rules that are currently being communicated orally. Uh, you may find a few procedures that need to be written down. Uh, very important. And with that, I'll turn it over to Tricia. Okay. So, OSHA issued two guidance documents to help general industry and construction employers establish a safety and health program. And this, 
program helps employers of all sizes really uh, set up a process to find and fix their work hazards. Core safety and health program elements uh, include management leadership, worker participation, hazard identification, hazard prevention and control, program evaluation, training, and multi-employer site provisions. Each element of the documents uh, has a short description, action items, and ways to accomplish those actions. And we have a written plan in the safety management suite that will help you complete a written safety and health program. The last bullet here. when you write down what you're doing to provide a safe and healthful workplace, a penalty reduction of as much as 25% is allowed in recognition of good faith. And here's the kicker. You must have a written safety and health program. The OSHA field operations manual says, quote, a 25% reduction for good faith normally requires a written safety and health management system, end quote. Now, In exceptional cases, inspectors may recommend a full 25% reduction for employers with 1 to 25 employees who have implemented an effective safety and health management system but have not reduced it to writing, but that's rare. And why chance it? Get it in writing and get any fines reduced. While Safety Management Suite offers over 55 non-required Uh, written uh, workplace safety plans, we thought we'd flag a few that you might like to check out. Accident Reporting and Investigation Plan. Uh, The written plan there provides the means to deal with accidents in a standardized way. Thorough investigation of all accidents will lead to the identification of root causes of accidents and any necessary corrective actions, so the risk of a similar accident can be reduced. Area lifts are popular at work. We have a plan to help you combat the hazards to lift operators and other workers. And while technically a scissors lift is not an aerial lift, our plan may help you create a scissors lift safety plan too. The combustible dust safety plan is for combustible dust explosion hazards that exist in a variety of industries, including chemicals, food, wood, paper, textiles, metal processing and recycling operations. And OSHA is taking this hazard seriously. It has an enforcement program right now that targets facilities with combustible dust hazards. And just last year, the agency issued a 156-page chapter in its OSHA technical manual dedicated to combustible dust. Finally, in recent years, OSHA has been touting its water, rest, and shade campaign. They have even cited employers uh, for excessive heat exposures under the general duty clause. Now, the agency is increasing enforcement efforts on high-risk heat days and is developing a program to target certain industries for a heat-related inspection. Next month, OSHA intends to issue a pre-proposal on heat prevention in outdoor and indoor settings, and the House and Senate also chimed in and reintroduced a bill that would direct OSHA to put enforceable heat regulations in place. So you may wish to consider our temperature extreme management plan. Early, oh, there you go. Mark, you're up. All right, thank you. Um, earlier, COVID-19 plan that required, uh, that's required for healthcare. Let's talk about non-healthcare. Under the OSHA Act, employers are responsible for providing a safe and healthy workplace free from recognized hazards likely to cause death or serious physical harm. Federal OSHA says implementing a workplace COVID-19 prevention program is the most effective way to mitigate the spread of COVID-19 at work. Uh, Also, while that federal agency does not require this plan for non-healthcare settings, state agencies may require it require one. So you need to check that out. Make sure if they do that, you go ahead and and you do that. Also, non-healthcare employers may wish to refer to the non-mandatory guidance recently issued by the agency. Uh, That talks about the written plan elements OSHA recommends that employers provide. What are some of those elements? Well, things like telework and flexible schedules, engineering controls, uh, especially ventilation, makes a lot of sense administrative policies on vaccination, 
personal protective equipment, face coverings, physical distancing, and enhanced cleaning programs for high touch surfaces. The guidance also calls for employee training, record keeping and reporting, and retaliation protections. Our infectious disease preparedness and response plan template is intended to help employers develop a plan to protect their workers and their organization from an infectious disease outbreak. This includes COVID-19 and pandemic flu, among others. The plan is over 26 pages and includes 28 plan elements, but of course, you're only going to use the elements that fit your needs and you will omit the rest. Also remember that other regulations relate to COVID-19 and some of these have a written plan requirement. All right, now with that, let's ask in an, inter an interactive poll question, what kind of plans do you have in place? So none, required plans only, required and non-required, or you're not sure please be sure to click your answer and we'll have the results in just a bit. Kevin? Yeah, thank you, Mark. Uh, while, we, while we await these poll results, uh, we'll answer an attendee question for Tricia. Tricia, an attendee asks, can we merge the EAP and FPP or do they have to be separate plans? Good question, uh, Kevin. So you can certainly combine your emergency action plan and fire prevention plan. It makes a lot of sense. Uh, the, the FPP is about preventing fires, right? And the EAP is about evacuating to the proper headcount location when a fire or other emergency occurs. So um, nice, uh, good idea. Um, but one caution, uh, if you combine required plans into one document, uh, I would suggest that you include a cross-reference section uh, that would help uh, the OSHA inspector to find the elements of the EAP and to find the elements of the FPP. So um, good question. So I think, Mark, <laughs> we have some poll results. <clears throat> All right, according to our poll results, 10% have no plans, 27% have required plans only, 55 have required and non-required plans, and not sure, 8%. So, so many of you already have some plans in place. Some of you go above and beyond the required plans. Whatever camp you're in, you may wish to take a look at the over 80 OSHA-related written safety plans we provide in Safety Management Suite. All right. So uh, you may wonder, you know, what, what am I going to include in the plan? Like we said earlier, if there's a written plan required, read it carefully. Uh, many times that written plan requirement is going to give you a list of required plan elements. Uh, and if it does, by all means, follow that list. For example, 1910-134-C1 lists nine elements that must be included in the written respiratory protection program if they're applicable. Uh, this approach makes things easier and straightforward, but even when the plan elements are listed, Sometimes the terms and legal jargon can slow you down. And if that happens, um, it may help to see if those terms are defined in a definition section of the regulation. A lot of, of the regulations have that. Uh, or see if the section of the regulation goes into more detail on your questionable area. What's more, there may be a CPL or a letter of interpretation that goes into more detail and provides more clarification. And Tricia, you're up next. All right, so what if there's no list of elements or what do you include in a non-required plan? We've come to learn there may be any one of 20 elements in a written plan and these are the elements that can help you to ensure compliance. And you may use all 20 elements in a plan uh, we've included these elements in our generic plan template, 
And you can use the generic plan to develop a safety or health plan on any topic you wish. So with the generic plan, you get to choose which elements work for your safety topic and your site. So with these 20 elements to choose from, you're not likely to miss much and can be confident that you're covering at least the big stuff in your plan. All right. Ask yourself this myth or fact question. An employer is allowed to use a plan template when starting to write a plan, myth or fact. This is the last self-test question today. Uh, an employer is allowed to use a plan template when starting to write a plan, myth or fact. Tricia, what's our answer? The answer is fact. You may use a template when starting to write your plan, but you must then tailor the plan to your own site and its operations, employees, and hazards. If a plan has not been tailored to your site, uh, it likely won't be effective. So for those who thought this was a myth, you can take comfort in knowing you can actually use a template to start. <laughs> plan templates make it much easier to begin and give you something to work with rather than having to start with a blank sheet of paper. Speaking of templates, we have almost 100 written plan templates for OSHA and EPA in the safety management suite. When writing safety plans or documents meant for communication throughout your company, here are some pointers that can help make your words understandable to everyone. Keep sentences short but not choppy. Use the pronoun you to convey ownership by the employees reading the plan. But if you prefer to be more technical or formal in your plan, you can create a preface sheet to accompany the plan, and that would address the person more familiarly. Use active verbs in parts of the plan. You want to avoid words that will not be readily understood by all, otherwise define them. State exactly what you mean in plain language. Avoid legalese. Uh, ensure that the plan is complete. If the regulations call for certain elements, make sure they're covered. Review and edit your plan, and you know others may also catch things you did not. Okay. The biggest limitation for any written plan may be that it's just a document. If a plan is not implemented through relevant areas of your company, then that written plan may be of little value. You can put a great written plan together, but if it just sits on the shelf or on a computer, uh, you'll find it to be pretty worthless and a waste of your time. Uh, after a while, it's forgotten. So if you put something down on paper, make sure that you intend to implement. First, make the plan readily available to employees. Build your training around your plan. Incorporate written safety plan information, relevant rules and procedures into everyday on-the-job training or into job skills training. So, in this way, safety is viewed as part of the job. Also, you don't need to go it alone. You need to get management on board to get the resources you need for implementation, uh, but also so, so that the buy-in to the plan works. I mean, the minute a top manager walks through the plant without proper PPE according to your plan, employees see right away that that plan means nothing. Implementation of the plan suffers, so Management commitment is so extremely important and workers are likely to go along with your plan when they help develop and implement it too. Everyone affected by a plan should have some responsibility for certain elements of it. Assign specific responsibilities and include those responsibilities within each job description. Realize though you may not get a quick and uh, dramatic results within days of implementing a written plan. You know, management and employees, they're not gonna change their behavior overnight simply because a plan was handed to them. Okay. Now, that's where the review comes in. Once you have that plan in place, your next step, a critical one, is to evaluate how well it's working. Do this as often as necessary uh, some regulations require an annual review as we've got listed on this slide. And then there, that one regulation down at the bottom, process safety management, calls for an audit 
every three years. Your plan review basically asks if the plan and its elements are working effectively and efficiently. The focus is not on employees, but the focus should be on the plan itself. Review plan documents uh, related to the plan, such as written accident reports, your OSHA log, look at canceled permits uh, and written procedures. Compare your plan elements to the written records. Next, interview employees and supervisors. Find out how well that plan is communicated and understood. Uh, to gauge safety training, ask employees about the hazards, how they're protected, and what they should do in an emergency. Ask supervisors, hey, how do you teach? Uh, how do you reinforce the training? How do you enforce the plan's work practices? And ask them what their responsibilities are during emergency situations. And then go ahead, ask upper management about their involvement in the plan. Next, examine your site's conditions to see what hazards you find. Look at inspection records, employee reports, incident investigations. See if any uh, plan element failed. And if it did fail, why did it fail? Finally, regulatory changes and enforcement activities can of course require you to uh, review plans. Tricia? Yeah, well-written plans should always reflect changes in your workplace and in the regulations. So you want to update plans as necessary. And the regulations will often say plans have to be updated as necessary. In fact, a new COVID-19 plan must be updated as needed. Many of the substance-specific regulations give an actual frequency and require an annual update. Uh, some both have both the annual and as necessary update requirement. The process hazard analysis has a five-year update cycle. All right. Thank you, Tricia. Where can you run into trouble? Well, one way is employers can create obligations beyond the scope of the regulations, and then they don't follow through with them. A plan may sound good on paper, but it has to match what a company, what your company is actually doing. You don't want to document something that your company doesn't really do. OSHA inspectors will consider a written plan to be worthless if they see that it's not being carried out in practice as spelled out in the document. How about another trouble area? Plans that don't leave room for options. If a plan has a detailed inspection checklist, it may create the impression that the company will only follow that checklist. This can prevent the flexibility necessary to ensure a thorough inspection is conducted when other safety issues or concerns arise during a walkthrough. It's also good to translate uh, written plans for employees that don't read English. Uh, in some cases, it's critical. Your programs should be in a language all employees can understand. All right, so today we covered all these agenda items you see on your slide. Now it's time for your questions. If we haven't sent yours in, uh, now's the time to do so. Trisha and I would like to thank our event sponsor, the JJ Keller Safety Management Suite with your complimentary, complimentary trial access, all of our most popular safety management tools, including written safety plan templates, customizable training programs, audits and inspection checklists, uh, and also you see this poll here that I failed to mention until now. So go ahead, please uh, check what your interests are. And JJ Keller, Safety Management Suite, uh, definitely thanks you. So here you go, use this poll and we're ready for some questions. Kevin, how about going back to you? Excellent. No, great job, Tricia and Mark. Thank you very much for your insights and expertise. Before we do start the Q&A, just want to remind everyone of the evaluation survey we're asking you to complete. The survey will open in a different screen after this presentation. Really appreciate your input because it'll help us improve future webcasts 
And again, we thank you for taking that extra time to offer feedback. Um, as a reminder, if you do wish to ask a question, simply click that Q&A button at the bottom of your screen, type your question and click the send button. Um, so we'll now get going. Um, Tricia, this one was for you. Can you talk about the hazard assessment? Sure, Kevin. Okay, so all general industry employers need to do a hazard assessment and they're gonna look for the hazards at work and determine whether PPE or personal protective equipment is needed. So that requirement is spelled out at 1910.132. I believe that regulation was listed in those uh, list of plans there. But so once you do that, uh, you know, OSHA requires you to certify that you've done the hazard assessment. And so there are a number of elements in that certification. Um, you document that the workplace has been evaluated, who certified that hazard assessment, um, the date, uh, and, and, and kind of identify that document as um, a certification of hazard assessment. Um, one thing that I would add uh, that's kind of a, a, a footnote, um, the PPE that you're going to consider for that will now include the personal fall protection. That was new with the walking working surfaces rule. Um, with COVID-19, uh, with this hazard assessment, it's important to assess the hazards to determine, um, you know, whether you need a respirator. Um, uh, face masks are not considered PPE, though. Just note that. Kevin. Thank you. Uh, next question is from Mark, and it asks, are offices exempt from writing plans? Well, that is an excellent question. So even office settings may have to have a plan. It all depends on which written plan requirements apply to your office. Uh, they're typically general industry establishments, so you're going to focus on 29 CFR 1910, and then the general industry plans we listed on the slides, hopefully, though, that list is going to be short. Um, if, you, if you don't have a laboratory, uh, for example, you don't need a chemical hygiene plan. Kevin? Thank you, Mark. Uh, Tricia, I have now a question for you asking, does the 10 or fewer employee exemption for EAPs apply to each location or to the company as a whole? Okay, so... The written emergency action plan requirement, it's based on the number of employees that are um, physically in a facility at any time during any workday. So it, it's not based on the number of employees that are employed with a company. Um, uh, so let, let's say you normally have 10 or fewer employees at a facility, but you, know, you might have more than 10 employees that congregate at that facility. So then the plan has to be in writing uh, if another OSHA standard requires that EAP. Um, let, let's say you have several facilities at the same location. Um, th this, this loophole is not about location. Uh, the EAP requirement is, is based on each facility and the number of employees that work or congregate in a facility. Okay, Kevin? Yes, thank you. Uh, Mark, this question asks, do we need to train employees on the information in our written plans? Well, you might. Uh, we know that you are to review that emergency action plan with employees if it's, if it's required. Check the written plan requirements. That'll tell you uh, how that works. Also, check the training requirements in that regulation. That often will indicate if it calls for a written plan training. Uh, and this reminds me, Safety Management Suite has a list of training requirements at a glance uh, that you will definitely want to look at. Kevin? Thank you. Uh, it looks like we've got time for, for one more question. Um, just Mark, in, in the time remaining, can you talk a little bit more about IIPP? All right. So that is the Injury and Illness Prevention Program for California. It's similar to the safety program we talked about. Now, federal OSHA does not require a written safety and health program, but some state plan states do require some kind of a program. Uh, they call them by different names. So IIPP, uh, Accident Prevention Program, that kind of thing, depending on the state. I know California, uh, Washington, Oregon, and Minnesota have something similar. 
Hawaii um, and Michigan do. There are there's some others too. Federal OSHA though highly recommends a safety and health program, and we offer both the IIPP template and safety and health program template in safety management suite. Well, again, uh, thank you. Uh, unfortunately, we have run out of time this afternoon. Sorry that we didn't get to everyone's questions, but again, all of today's unanswered questions will be forwarded on to our speakers. And once again, we do hope you take the time to fill out the evaluation survey to provide your feedback. Uh, with that, we end today's Safety and Health Magazine webcast. We'd like to thank Tricia Hakovich, Mark Stromi, everyone at JJ Keller, and all of you who listened in. Thanks and have a great day.